Hi, everyone. This is V-Shake from ShakeTheCosmos.com. My guest today is Alice Sullivan. And if you're listening to this right now, hit the follow or subscribe button or give me a rating um, on the podcast that helps me appear in the organic search results. Um, Alice and I met at Bowdoin College, actually really before Bowdoin at Posse, and our friendship continued through Bowdoin and um, and Viva. I'm just super excited to connect and talk about art history today. Um, to give you a little bit more background on Alice, she holds, again, a bachelor's from Bowdoin College, and she has a master's in arts history from Williams College. And she completed her PhD in, in the University of Michigan. She's a historian of medieval art, architecture, visual culture, specializing in the artistic production of Eastern Europe and the Byzantine Slavic cultural spheres between the 14th and 16th centuries. Among her peer-reviewed academic publications, she has award-winning articles and recently a co-edited book published with Brill. In 2018, she co-founded the initiative titled North of Byzantine, which explores the rich medieval history, art, and culture of the northern frontiers of the Byzantine Empire in Eastern Europe. She's now working on several other books in the field of art history and is co-directing a new interactive website titled Mapping Eastern Europe. Well, Alice, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me, Abhishek. All right. Well, we're going to jump right into it. And I know I mentioned art history and would love for like our listeners and viewers, um, for people who kind of just don't know what art history implies, um, kind of what are the basics here? What is what is art history? Let's just cover the baseline. So art history is the study of the past through the visual and the spatial remains. Um, so it's studying history, not just through the textual sources, but st studying history through the visual sources as well. Um, so we have objects and artifacts that, that date back to thousands and thousands of years in the BC era. And then we have more um, well-known periods like the Renaissance in Italy and the modern and contemporary worlds. Um, I, for one, am a historian of medieval art. Um, the period that spans uh, a quite a big chunk um, in, in the history of the world, uh, more than a thousand years, but my focus is on the period between the 14th and um, the 16th centuries. Art history is not very well known as a discipline. I mean, it, it is very much a field of study, but in some parts of the world, like in Eastern Europe, it's still a very young discipline, and it's not taught in all um, high schools across the country in the U.S. So when I went to Bowdoin, I had no idea that art history was a field of study until I discovered a class on the arts of Venice and I was hooked. So the, the rest is history, essentially. That's awesome. Thanks for kind of covering the basics in that. And I mean, as I think about it, like, so you took a class and like you were, you said you were hooked about it. Um, what, what was it? What was about art history that kind of made you just be hooked about it? Um, or, or just really get into it? Yeah, so it taught me um, how to pause and look carefully and critically at the world around me um, 
both past and present through the material remains. So I, I learned the value of art and the things that we can learn, not just through the making process, but through the kinds of meanings and functions that objects and building, buildings embody. Um, and Venice is a very culturally rich city, um, a, a city where different kinds of traditions intermingle. So it was through Venice that I was able to be exposed to um, a variety of different kinds of objects, uh, art objects and artifacts and buildings, and uh, learn, gain the tools needed to explore further in the field. I love it. I love how, I guess uh, it kind of makes me curious, like how, um, how like, uh, you know, between the 14th and 16th century, like I may, let's say I may have been traveling and I saw some things that might be art historian might consider like part of that world. Um, how does an art historian look at something and get something out of it um, when looking at uh, kind of like that translation? Yeah, so we can certainly appreciate a building or an object for its aesthetic qualities. So how it looks, the kinds of materials that it's built, that it's made out of, um, the kinds of um, practices and, and ritual or paraliturgical activities that took place there. But we can also appreciate objects uh, or try to dig a little deeper and try to understand, uh, to gain insight into the kinds of negotiations of the people who created those things um, had to grapple with. Um, so perhaps different, uh, different techniques, different traditions, they, want, they may have wanted their objects to speak to particular groups or make larger statements. So I think it's sometimes through the object itself or through the monument that we can get to um, deeper questions about, about history. Um, and also more and more exciting revelations. Um, wow, so we can certainly say. <laughs> fascinating, fascinating. Like I'd never thought about it art that way, like looking at something and being able to decipher the struggles, the, the culture that those people or might have gone through. Yeah. Um, and, and certainly it offers us a deeper appreciation for human creativity, I think, ultimately. And different, um, different groups at different historical moments have dealt um, in various ways um, with their own struggles and anxieties and hopes and ambitions. And those are manifested as much in the written historical record as they are in the visual record. So I think what's really wonderful about art history is that we don't, art historians don't necessarily make art. We look at art, we study art, and we study it against the historical record, the documents, the sources, the chronicles, the letters, whatever may survive, the inscriptions. And we try to piece uh, the puzzle together to try to get a richer understanding. So ultimately, the goal of a good art historian, I would say, is not to distill the work of art to a single unitary meaning, because ultimately that is impossible to achieve when we look to the past, but rather to allow the multiplicity of meanings and functions to coexist while pushing for a certain argument. Wow. And I, under I understand that you've got some visuals as well that you wouldn't mind if you wouldn't mind sharing kind of showing like why it's important yes um see it here yeah thank you so much i see yeah. i see the beautiful so this is um, this is a church this is a monastic church that sits at the core of one of my current uh research projects it's the Church of the Annunciation in Moldovica Monastery, built on the eastern slopes of the Carpathian Mountains in modern Romania. It was built in the early 16th centuries. And, you know, as a, as a visitor, 
to the site. You might appreciate this building for its very splendid architectural features and the fact that it has these exquisite murals, paintings on its exterior walls. Um, and that is certainly one level at which we can experience and appreciate this monument. But as an art historian, I dig a little deeper and I try to understand why does this building look the way it does? Why is it painted entirely outside? Why is it painted entirely inside as well? And I can show you um, some of those images of, of the interior paintings. Give me one second. Um, so it's painted entirely on the exterior, as you can see here. Also on the uh, interior. I see the outside um, as, oh, wow, and in, in inside as well. Wow. And the inside. So the various spaces inside this in, inside this church are richly painted from top to bottom, all around. So my, one of my main questions was, why is this the case, right, with this particular liturgical space? Uh, we know of churches being painted on the outs uh, on the interior, but rarely they preserve exterior decorations. Um, and also, they this is a type of building that um, is built in a tradition that becomes a kind of established in this area, in this former principality of Moldavia, that combines, or I should say, draws from Gothic building practices, Byzantine and Slavic building practices, yet remodels these traditions in a local context. So we can look at this building as a unique expression of Romanian identity at this moment, but I think that would be a very um, superficial way to look at it. Instead, it's more meaningful to look at it as a building that negotiates between many different kinds of traditions in a local context. And interestingly, uh, looking a little deeper yet again, um, I learned that this, this practice of sanctifying by visual means the interior and also the exterior walls of churches is not a tradition invented in the Carpathian Mountains. It's actually a, a Byzantine tradition that um, uh, happened over the course of the, the medieval period, yet the buildings that survive from the, from the lands of the former Byzantine Empire and the Serbian and Bulgarian kingdoms do not preserve the exterior paintings to such an extent. So the Moldavian material or the Romanian material could be seen as the best preserved representation of this tradition that no longer survives in other parts of the world. Wow. So interesting. So, I mean, if you're listening to this, you know, on the audio, we'll have these slides available, but we're essentially looking at uh, these, uh, these churches uh, in, uh, and would you say, I guess, what's the story behind um, and why, why a church? Um, you know, it, it, was there something particular about uh, these or they're just studying these buildings um, that makes them more interesting? Yeah, so in, in the ecclesiastical context, uh, we see some of the most lasting um, um, expressions, visual expressions, um, in the context of East, Eastern Orthodoxy, but also in the context of Catholicism in the West, there has been so much art that has been produced and so many churches that have been built. Uh, with these buildings from the Balkans and the Carpathians and from the former Byzantine lands, we see this effort to represent religious scenes on the outside of buildings as if to extend the spiritual space and the religious space of the interior to the outside world, right? So we have these monastic churches that are uh, the central feature of the monastic communities, and they're 
entirely painted on the inside, but also on the outside. So as if this, the, the sacred space of the church spills on the outside of, of the structure. So it's quite, it's quite a, unique, a unique effort. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like also the, I guess, what, what, what would, uh, so like, I guess I'm trying to understand like how, um, how, how these churches, like why, um, like what did you get out of the experience? Did you end up going to this, the, these, uh, these sites in person? Did you have to, or did you, like what kinds of records did you have to understand to really get a full picture of, uh, of this building? Um, yeah, so it's uh, these buildings, these churches are part of um, a tourist, but also a spiritual economy in this area. So uh, they serve as active monasteries, as active parish churches now, um, but they're also um, part of these pilgrimages that tours that people take um, to visit. So I have, over the course of my doctoral studies uh, between 2010 and 2016, 17, visited um, many, many sites across uh, Romania and um, in other parts of Eastern Europe, recorded the monuments and tried to understand um, how these buildings functioned in their local context. But in addition to the buildings themselves, I have studied objects in local collections. I have studied archives and archives, uh, as well as secondary literature. So scholars who have come before me, archaeologists, historians, art historians, um, museum professionals who have written aspects um, of, uh, um, have written studies on aspects of this rich artistic and architectural production. And I'm trying to piece together a story that situates these buildings in, in their local context, but also in a larger networked medieval framework. Interesting. Um, yeah. Okay. So then, um, and then you, you mentioned the story is that I know uh, we were talking earlier also that you, you're writing a book or actually you've written a book. So is, yes. is, is the, or is there a relationship between what we're talking about now and then this book that, um, people it's available now to order? Yes. Um, before I get to my book, which I'm very excited to talk about, um, I want to tell you how this fits into my larger effort. Um, and this larger effort has to do with, um, or stems, I should say, from my training in art history uh, at Bowdoin and Williams, and then also in Michigan, where I was trained in the Western medieval tradition and also in the Byzantine um, historical tradition. And what I noticed is that both the Western and the Byzantine facets of history have particular ge geographic and temporal parameters. And within these geographic and temporal parameters, Eastern Europe never has a footing or has not yet found its footing. And I think that has to do in part with um, 20th century politics and lack of access to sites that have... Um, um, that have been kind of closed off to the rest of the world due to um, the former Soviet Union. So essentially the lands to the east of the former Iron Curtain, which you see here on the screen delineated, are the areas that sit at the core of my of my work. So with my, with my dissertation project, with the monograph that I'm writing, but also with the current um, book that I just published with my colleague, we want to bring attention to this, to, to this rich artistic landscape. Um, and the objects that survive are just absolutely amazing. We have metal, we, in addition to the monuments, we have metalwork, uh, we have embroideries, we have manuscripts, um, and then we also have the buildings themselves and the key historical protagonists 
uh, the patrons, these rulers who who sought to protect their realms, but also to preserve Christianity um, in its um, in a, in its various forms um, in, in the former principality of Moldavia, but also in other lands of the Carpathians and the Balkans. The book that I published most uh, recently with my colleague Alessia uh, Rossi uh, from the Index of Medieval Art at Princeton, it's titled Byzantium in Eastern European Visual Culture in the Late Middle Ages. And it's the first of our efforts to bring attention to the rich artistic landscape of Eastern Europe during the late medieval period. Um, and it's a book that um, is also um, part of, of a, a larger effort. So it, it's leading to, to other future publications, another volume uh, next year and uh, a third one in 2022 and 2023 um, that looks at various facets of this artistic production. Congratulations on the book. I think that's, that's super exciting. And now, I, I mean... It makes me think also like, you know, this, you know, it's a continuing, it's a continuation. It's going to come out. The, there's going to be more volumes of this book. And um, um, I like, it almost feels like a service to the people who live in those areas. They're, they're going to get a richer understanding of where they live. I mean, it, do you feel like, do, do you end up, is there sort of a, um, a relationship that gets created um, through these, through this type of research with the locals, um, that, that, you know, this research offers. Yes, I would say certainly, I think these different local communities in countries in Eastern Europe, they very much appreciate their cultural heritage. And I think sometimes the frustration stems from not being able to find ways to make this appreciation known to the wider world. And one, um, byproduct of our efforts um, to to promote the cultural and artistic landscapes of these regions is to bring attention um, to to um, to the rich art architecture and visual culture in the English speaking world um, in, in Western Europe and in the US um, in particular. So the volume that Alessia and I put together is in fact a, a collection of essays. We have worked with um, with authors who have written um, specialized studies on particular subjects and regions. And we have brought these essays together because we believe they all fall under the umbrella of this interest in how the Byzantine heritage was reimagined in Eastern Europe and how this is visualized through the art, uh, through the art architecture and visual culture that remains and then for us to study today. Were there, as, you, as you and your, um, and you and Maria, we're, Alessia, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Alessia, we're going through this exercise of these compiling these essays. Were there things that you yourself were kind of surprised about or kind of un unearthing through this process uh, that you were like, oh, oh, interesting. I, I, I never realized that that was, a, that was a possibility or maybe, you know, maybe not giving away the secret sauce, I guess people might have to read it in the book. <laughs> yeah, no, we, um, we, we went back and forth um, between deciding what we want to include in, in the volume and uh, the majority of the paper of the essays of the chapters were delivered as conference papers at the Byzantine Studies Conference in 2018 in San Antonio. And from there, we invited additional contributors to enhance the topics explored in the volume. Uh, but I think what the reader will find most interesting is that the introduction, we aimed with the introduction to offer uh, an overview of the big 
picture and the issues um, at hand, but also to suggest that the book can be read from page one to page 302 in, in, in order. And I think there's a story that the order of the essays in, uh, in which we're presenting them in this book tells, but you can also select any one chapter and delve into one specific facet of the region of, um, of a work, of a, of a practice, and, and still get so much out of out of that reading, um, so the essay the, the the book contains ten essays, um, and they span from Bulgaria to Muscovy to the Romanian principalities, Serbia, uh, connections between um, um, the the Balkans and Italy, for example, and from Byzantium up to north, from Constantinople to up further north. So there's yeah. a lot in there. <laughs> yeah, oh, totally. So if you if you do you have do you have more screen you want to share? Or we we can stop sharing. Um, yeah, I wanted to to um, just note that this these efforts are part of my larger North of Byzantium project uh, with my colleague Alessia. Um, you can access our platform at www.northofbyzantium.org. And this is a platform um, that explores through lectures, workshops, conferences, publications, the rich history, art, and culture of the Northern Frontiers, the Byzantine Empire, and Eastern Europe um, between the 13th, 13th and the 17th centuries. And in the context of this um, North of Byzantium platform, we are now in the process of developing an interactive website um, titled Mapping Eastern Europe in this period, um, where the wider public will be able to learn more about the art, architecture, and visual culture of these lands. That's awesome. And that's the, that's, I mean, and that's, I'm just fascinating by this book writing process and going through this mapping Eastern Europe. I mean, are there, like, I guess, uh, does it become, like, what, what was that writing process like to get this book in there? Um, and I just feel like uh, I hear about Eastern Europe, but my, I'm not fully educated on it. So what is, what is the writing process to get a book like this? going yeah so so for us it was a lot of managing many different moving pieces <laughs> to the puzzle because we're working with different authors so both alessia and i um authored an individual chapter in the book based on our specialties and then uh, the other authors have written the other chapters but we put them together and packaged them into this um beautiful well we think it's a beautiful collection of essays um and the it's reason a, it's why an we, art by itself <laughs> it is absolutely and the reason why we felt, uh, we feel actually quite strongly that the way forward to bring attention to Eastern Europe and to the art and architecture of Eastern Europe is through the edited collection is because individual people have expertise in a specific country or specific region or specific topic um, that not, not one person can master over the course of their early training and I, I find I consider myself in the early stages of my career and it's it's a we want to tell a story but it's not a story that we can tell well on our own so it has to be a collective effort at least in, in the initial stages and then once select objects and monuments are known and issues are brought to the surface then we can write more um, general and encompassing narratives uh, perhaps single or co-authored narratives wow and then it's I appreciate that. And it's really a collective effort. And it, yeah. it, well, maybe, is it right to say it's an international effort considering um, how many uh, essays and the contributors you have? 
Certainly. I think it's a, it's a collective and an international effort. And it's amazing to, to be able to work with scholars who, um, who, who, who are from Serbia, from Bulgaria, from Romania, from Ukraine, uh, working in other parts of Europe or in the U.S. and bring them all together and, and have them um, learn from one another, collaborate with one another, and also put together a product that will make, we believe, will make a difference in the scholarly community. Yeah. I mean, I, I know one of the... And making a difference, like, so what... What is that difference? Like, what what do you feel? What is that? What is that impact or difference you hope to create, or you think people might get out of uh, this work? I think within the field of art history, my main goal is to allow instructors, professors, students to incorporate aspects of the material evidence that survives from Eastern Europe into the larger narratives of art history, um, into the study of Western medieval art. So looking at Gothic into the Carpathians, um, at the study of Byzantine art, not ending the narrative of 1453 when the Byzantine Empire fell to the Ottoman Turks, but rather extending that narrative and trying to understand how different Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox regions negotiated this, this struggle against vying powers, but also the struggle to preserve Orthodox traditions at this critical moment. So trying to incorporate aspects of these artistic traditions and cultures into the lar- into the classroom, into the larger narratives of art history, but also on a more general level to introduce the wider public and just anybody interested in studying more the, um, the, the artistic landscapes of these territories to um, to be able to do so, and of course they can Google, they can they can they can read specific books. But through the Mapping Eastern Europe project, they will be able to um, embark on a journey um, on their own computers on an open access platform where they will find scholarly contributions and accessible contributions um, that will situate specific objects and monuments um, and make them accessible. Um, to all. And ultimately, also, I think, I hope it will encourage people to travel to these parts of the world and visit these monuments and these objects and local collections in person once COVID ends, of course. Yeah. I mean, uh, the, I mean, why would people Google? I mean, they can just understand the the rich history through your, through the book, because you've done so much intensive work into, into this area. So, I guess what's, I mean, and we, we just kind of mentioned COVID. So uh, we are in, in living in an in interesting time. And I feel like we were talking about how there's a relationship between art history and creativity and how that can, uh, that can be a pretty interesting um, process in this current time. Like where, where does the creative process come in, uh, in art history? Um, uh, for for people, yes, I think for for art historians, the creative element comes from looking at the objects and the buildings and trying to understand them and and reading about them and reading the scholarship and reading the primary sources and then trying to find with own skills um, and critical critical eye and critical thinking skills, trying to identify the most. Um, 
creative way to tell the story that they want to tell relative to the material and the textual evidence. Um, so I think there's definitely an element of creativity in writing about art, in writing about history and writing about art history. Um, but then also, I think it, it gets to a deeper question about or issue perhaps of trying to understand the moment of creation of these objects, um, because there was a lot of creativity that went into play in um, the kinds of techniques that were used, the kinds of materials that were employed, um, how an artist talked or was in conversation with a patron and with the ecclesiastical community to determine what an object is meant to represent or wh how, what kind of meaning and function it's meant to have. Um, so I think there's a lot of collaboration and also a lot of creativity involved. Wow. I, I guess I, had, I hadn't thought about it that way either, like just how it's it's a blueprint of creativity all around us, but you're you're kind of unraveling as you're going through this process uh, in art history. Um, and interesting, interesting. Um, and then how could how could uh, as we're wrapping up here, like how could people uh, get access to your book? And what is uh, I know you you shared a website earlier um, as well. Um, and do you have any promotions uh, going on for people? Um, Yes. So the book is available through um, the Brill publishing site. It's The book is, is published with Brill, uh, but also you can find it on Amazon. And on the North of Byzantium website, www.northofbyzantium.org, um, we have under NOB publications details about the book, including abstracts for the individual chapters and uh, including a promotional flyer. So you could get a discount through the end of the year if um, you purchase the book. Otherwise, you might check it out in your local library. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, so if you're listening, uh, click on the link uh, and you can order. And there's a, currently a promotional offer till the end of the year and go order the book. Um, well, thank, I think that's really it. Any uh, uh, shout outs or any comments, Alice? Um, thank you so much, Abhishek. Um, I, I want to... to um, to say thanks for the invitation, but also um, a shout out to Posse, our Posse group, um, and to my colleague, Alessia from Princeton, um, without whom, you know, none of this maybe <laughs> would have been possible. But I, I really enjoy working with her greatly. Well, I appreciate you sharing in a topic I know not much about, but I feel a little bit more educated on now. So thank you so much, Alice. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening. Please hit the subscribe button. We'll be back next week 